May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. Really excited to having Dr. Matt Zakreski here. He goes by Dr. Matt and he is a psychologist and is the founder of the Neurodiversity Collective. So glad to have you to the podcast and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to do a lot of podcasts, but this is definitely the first one of these I've done. So when you reached out to me, I said, oh, how cool is that? I had to quickly rabbit hole and listen to as many of your episodes as I could. But, you know, I feel like I'm relatively caught up. All right. Well, there's a few episodes that have been yeah. going on for a couple of years, just past our two-year yeah. anniversary. And so glad I do a lot of podcasts listening myself to learn and expand and trying to help learn more about neurodiversity and the intersection with a lot of people with also some struggles. There's so many gifts that go along with it, but also some struggles and being misunderstood and many other aspects to that. But yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I think, you know, when you think about the word misunderstood, right, there's been this groundswell of information and advocacy around neurodivergence over the last 10 years, right? I mean, there have been people who've been ringing these gongs for decades, but, you know, we've sort of hit that critical mass over the last decade. And it really is lovely to see it coming. But there's a lot of people who are sort of playing catch up right now saying like, these are terms and words and paradigms I've got to get behind. If I'm going to do my job as a medical doctor, as a psychologist, as a psychiatrist, as a teacher, as a coach, like what do I need to know? So it really is an honor to be able to speak to more the medical side of these things, right? And, you know, I know that psychology and medicine have at times crossed swords in their history, but I, I've always seen it that we're all on the same team, you know, and I, I genuinely cannot do my job without you, right? I need someone to weigh in on the medical side and help with the, you know, the internal pieces of it. And I will do my part to inform what care and environments should look like for people with different brains. Yeah, great. Can you give a little broader background on who you are and your training? Yeah. So I'm Dr. Matt Zagreski. Everybody calls me Dr. Matt. I am a twice exceptional individual. So I was identified gifted in second grade and diagnosed with ADHD in high school. It explained a lot. Um, so that was, that was good. So this work is personal and professional for me. I graduated with my PsyD in 2016 and really with a focus on helping gifted and other neurodivergent kids. So a lot of my training in grad school were you know, placements around that population. I've been lucky enough to work in schools that support these kids and consult with schools and give talks all over the world. It's often the community that people don't know is out there and being neurodivergent can feel very isolating and feel very alone. 
right? So like oftentimes I feel like my job is more of a clearinghouse and say, hey, you're gifted in Iowa. Did you know that Iowa has one of the best state organizations for giftedness as well as the Bell and Blank Center at the University of Iowa in Iowa City? And they stare at me like, wait, what? I'm not the only one? I'm like, no, there's a lot of you actually. <laughs> Um, so, you know, go Hawkeyes if you're a, if you're an Iowan. Um, so, you know, and then we get into the psychoeducation and the therapy and the advocacy piece, but a lot of it's just like, Hey, welcome to the club. You know, we're happy to have you. Awesome. And, you know, when you have a special history with yourself and then wanting to help and seeing a big need yeah. uh, for so many different ways, like we talked about in the beginning, kind of misunderstood, and there's so many different things to talk about, but one of the things that intersects with many people who struggle with chronic pain disorders are often a mismatch in environment and with a calibration of how their brain and nervous system works. And there are many people we're finding that who are on the neurodivergent spectrum who also struggle with these chronic centralized pain disorders we call fibromyalgia, migraines, IBS, a lot of those that overlap. And one of the topics that I'd like to ask you about is understanding trauma and that as it connects with people who have uh, neurodivergent brains, as it seems that often they are more likely to have gone through high stress uh, trauma uh, type situations. But so can you generally talk just what are the different types of trauma that somebody might have to go through? Yeah. So trauma is as wide of a concept as basically the human experience is. And the single most important differentiator when it comes to trauma is the perception of threat. So, you know, this is an example from my own life. So I was in New Zealand once and we were whitewater rafting. And I got knocked out of the boat in front of the biggest rapid on the river, a class four rapid. I was underwater for more than two minutes. And I remember distinctly thinking, I'm going to die. Like, you know, and you're wearing a life vest, right? But the current was so strong. I could, my helmet was above the water. My, so was I'm going to die with what, eight inches, right? Away from air. It was sort of comical almost. And then I hit a rock and I bounced out of the water and swam like mad to my friend's boat, Right. And I perceived that as very scary, but, oh my gosh, I'm lucky to be alive and let's just move along with our lives, right? Like that was a thing that happened and on the spectrum of things that happened, that sucked. Like not not a good thing. Um, And then as we are leaving the river, one of the other people on on our boat tour scraped her knuckles on a rock. And she called her father, who called the attorney. And for the rest of our vacation, another six days, she would not shut up about scraping her fingers on that rock, right? The perception of that pain and the injury to self, right, is what drives the experience of trauma. And trauma is itself a discrete thing, right? It can be something very concrete and acute, like I was in a car wreck. It can be something environmental, like a building collapse. It can be something perceived like, I think my family's out of money, right? Like, I think we're going to be poor, right? And all of those things can feed into trauma, right? 
where we move from trauma to something like PTSD is when the symptoms, the psychological aftershocks of that event don't resolve within six months. So, you know, you might be in a terrible car wreck and have nightmares about it for a couple of weeks. And then like, you know, every so often, you know, twinge in your shoulder, but a couple of months later, things have more or less returned to normal. But in the trauma world, every time you hear a car screech, your brain snaps you back to when you got T-boned by that semi on Route 6, right? And our brains are, for better or for worse, great at yanking us back to that thing because it's a whole body experience when it comes to trauma. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that is more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. For many people who have fibromyalgia as their diagnosis, it's often preceded by, and I like using a clinical term, high-stress situation because Mm -hmm. that can encompass a lot of different things and it allows all the different elements. And it's also that perception, as you said, one's high stress situation may not be another. It's interesting as reading some of the literature in preparation for this is this measure of resiliency. And I think there's psychological tests of that. And I think many people who are listening and the people who I hope listen to this are people who are going or living with fibromyalgia, but also their loved ones and also the medical community who doesn't have a lot of training on this, but is looking to learn more. But I think for those who are struggling with this, the idea of resiliency may come across as a double entendre that if you are not resilient, then you don't have a strength of fortitude in yourself, in your character, because we often attribute that as a positive thing. Mm. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I often think my number one job as a therapist is to create an environment that fosters resiliency and help turn up the volume on a person's internal resiliency. So, you know, I mean, like, you know, I see that you wear glasses, right? You know, you ever have that moment where you got to, you, you wish you were wearing your glasses so you could find your glasses, right? Resiliency can be very similar, right? I, I need to have resiliency to build resiliency, right? How do I build resiliency if I'm not resilient? But the fact of the matter is, is that if you are standing and drawing breath, you are being resilient. You're just feeling like the resilience you have isn't enough to meet the challenges you're being set with, right? It's like if you can swim, but you can't swim in a big rip current, you might think you're a bad swimmer. No, it's just how many people on earth can swim through a strong rip current? So what we need to do is sort of reframe it not as an all or nothing thing. I'm either resilient or I'm not. It's I can have more resilience. I always want to build my resilience. I want more and more and more of it so I can meet these challenges because, you know, life is never going to stop giving us challenges. They're not all traumatic, but they are all challenges. Yeah, exactly. And I think that support system is really important in fostering that I had a, a medical student doing rotations now just first year and uh, getting a chance to observe take a simple 
chief complaint, history of present illness, and just getting a chance to meet with a couple patients. And you have one person, and I asked, who's a second visit with me, who has some neurodivergency as part of some of these coexisting chronic pain type issues. And I asked, what is going on at home? I said, I don't know you real well, but if you have a spouse or long-term boyfriend that doesn't have a substance use disorder, who has a consistency in how they treat you. And I just said, is that the case? And she laughed, well, of course it is. And I'm like, well, yeah, nothing but of course. Right. right. <laughs> and we go into the next patient, and that's not the case. Yeah. And yet having that structure is often a challenge, and that, that gets to be a really sticky situation. Going back to the trauma, I've heard of trauma being something that I don't want to say is you invited versus something that's random, potentially. Yeah. I, the idea that, and, and, and I might edit this out as you get this, but the idea of a random uh, act in war that just yeah. happens to happen on somebody um, randomly hit by um, a, a car that you were not doing anything inappropriate versus something that you may have had a partial contribution to. And the role of the brain in this is so important. And it's also incredibly subjective, right? It's going to sound like I'm talking on both sides of my mouth here. But, you know, let's say you find yourself in a situation, right, where you sneak out of the house at night to go to a concert. And while you're at the concert, a fist fight breaks out. And you watch somebody get socked in the jaw and they collapse, right? That is a traumatic thing. You watch an assault occur and you find yourself replaying that over and over in your brain through this narrative. If I hadn't snuck out and gone to this concert, I wouldn't have been there. I wouldn't have seen this thing, right? And that is our brain telling the narrative. The really interesting thing about our brains is our brains seek to understand, And our brains will actually center ourselves in stories to help us understand it, even if the story is not our story. So our brain would rather have a navigable narrative that makes sense to them, even if it's wrong, than acknowledge that the universe is full of entropy. You know, like that random car wreck. Well, if I hadn't stopped and gotten ice cream, I would have been in the intersection at that time. But you wouldn't have been, or maybe you would have. I don't know. But this is what our brains do. I was a senior in high school during 9-11. And I'm from New Jersey. So like my town, you can look up and see the Manhattan skyline from my town. And talk, you know, traumatic event, right? Not only locally, nationally, maybe globally traumatic. And I cannot tell you how many of my peers in high school were like, it's my fault my mom went to work in Manhattan today. And it's like, your mom has gone to work every day in Manhattan since you were three, right? You're 18 now. And like, why would that be any different today? But this is what our brains do. Our brains are like, I would rather be the main character and to understand something than try and make sense of the universe is this cold, unfeeling, random place. You might see this at home with your partner or partners, right? Like you come home, your partner's in a bad mood. You're like, hey, what's wrong? Nothing. Like, oh, but something's wrong. Nothing. I don't want to talk about it. And you start going, what did I do? I clearly did something. 
I, what did I do? And you ask that your partner that enough till they're finally mad at you. And your brain and someone goes, ah, this I can handle this. I know, <laughs> I know what this one is. And for all of us that are partnered, we're all like nodding vigorously at our, at our headsets as we listen to this in the car. That doesn't make it true. Your partner could have had a bad day at work or stubbed their toe or gotten a really sad phone call from their great aunt or a million other things, right? trying to help understand what's going on. I think that idea of locus of control or natural tendency is to look inside and what our role is, but also that's often where it isn't in our control and having to look outward. And that's a, especially when a trauma happens, it's a, a very challenging to navigate through that. What types of trauma seem to have the biggest impact on people, if there is any information about that? So the types of trauma that seem to have the greatest impact are twofold. The first is immediate threat of grievous injury or loss of autonomy, right? So if you were sexually assaulted, that is a grievous threat to body and autonomy, right? There's way too much sexual assault out there. That could be its own podcast, of course. But like, you know, if that's something that happens to you and we know that, you know, many, many people have, have suffered sexual assault, not all of them develop trauma or PTSD as a result of it, but many do because of the intensity of that. The other thing that seems to lead to the most trauma is environmental chronic trauma. What ends up happening, like chronic food insecurity, for instance, is a trauma, right? And you can have a trauma response to that. My grandfather, when he was still alive, he lived through the Great Depression, right? He was a child during that. And he was a very psychologically sound person who also collected everything to the point where his house was almost a hoarder house. The man never played a round of golf in his life and he owned over a hundred sets of golf clubs because he grew up in several years of scarcity, scarcity of food, scarcity of objects, scarcity. I don't think you could isolate a singular event in there that was capital T traumatic, right? But there's something to be said about the longitudinal nature of a bad situation you can't get out of. And I think what you and I are seeing in our professions is the resultant traumatic effects of COVID. If you zoom out for a second, right, we lived through a situation where on Friday, it was a normal day. On Saturday, the world was shut down by an invisible illness that we couldn't see and didn't understand and killed millions of Americans. And millions of people worldwide. I mean, talk about trauma. I mean, like, you know, if it was a wolf in the neighborhood, you could see the wolf, you could fight the wolf. This is like, do I touch things? Do I not touch things? Do I hug people? Do I put a mask on? Like, how do I navigate this thing? And it's terrifying. You know, if you have, even for your own bodily self, but you know, family, you know, I have young children. I mean, my son was born during COVID. It's like, how do I go to the grocery store and buy food for my family, if I am risking bringing home a deadly pathogen, that could kill my son. And we had to make those psychological choices every day with no run-up, 
in many ways, it's amazing society didn't collapse. <laughs> but that's the resilience of the human spirit. I don't know how many people would describe themselves as handling COVID with resilience. But as a mental health professional, I can say the vast majority of us did. And that's amazing. And what we're finding, too, for many people who were infected with the virus, most don't have long-term symptoms. But there are those that have that acute inflammatory response. The inflammation goes away, but there are persistent symptoms, similar like getting in a car accident. Your bones have healed. The muscle swelling is healed, yet you have um, persistent symptoms. What does the research say of the effect on the brain of these high-stress trauma events? Yeah. So high-stress trauma events release a tremendous amount of cortisol in our bodies, right? And too much cortisol over time is very toxic. It wears our systems down. The good news is that brain is plastic in the sense that it responds to repeated stressors and pain, but the brain will also respond to repeated safety and cure. We call this epigenetics, right? The body responds to its environment and the environment responds to the body. So if you're out there and you're like, yeah, I was a kid who grew up in poverty, food scarcity, I slept in my car multiple times, and sometimes I didn't know who I was coming home to, those things potentially were traumatic for you. And you might be sitting there like, so Dr. Matt's telling me that like, oh, great, this is my destiny. No, what happens to our brains and bodies are not destiny. It is a chapter in a book. We can't pretend it didn't happen. And I think a lot of people get into trouble trying to pretend that they didn't get into that car accident or they didn't survive that sexual assault or they didn't worry all day if their uncle had made it out of 9-11, right? Like those are things that happen. They're part of our stories, but there's more book to be written. And as you start to see that event in the broader context of a story, of a life narrative, you build more space and context around that event, which gives your brain somewhere else to anchor and reflect on that, which is really, it's one of the most amazing things about our brains is our brains will actively respond and change our bodies to situations of threat and to situations of peace. And that's, you know, I mean, that's how we, we use that information to amplify the work that mental health professionals do. So about, mm, about six hours ago, my last patient of the day, yeah. who I've known for a while, and I discovered last week when I saw her, I did the Cat Q questionnaire because I've been using that as a screener, and that'd be another question to ask how do I, so it's a tool with some suspicion because just I thought maybe could there be some evidence. So she scored pretty high on that. Mm-hmm. She's not getting the support, it was some stress at home, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, some restless leg syndrome on top of that, but... Talking about this, her husband or partner said, yeah, I I know I've had that and had said that he didn't talk to anybody besides mom until he was three and a half and that he was different. A hypothetical patient out there who may be going through a story like this, Mm -hmm. who has gone through trauma, maybe has been through high stress in middle school, may have been the victim of successive sexual assaults or taken advantage of in many ways by people that some of it's been forgotten for obvious reasons in the brain, but now is still having these ongoing struggles and 
uh, a patient might ask me, is there any hope? How do I get through this? And maybe in a higher stress situation as well, meaning some economic insecurity, some social insecurity, maybe their car is no longer working, having to take the bus. And the question has been asked to me, well, how do I get through this? Is there any hope or am I doomed? And this may be somebody who recognizes that they have a neurodivergent brain on top of this. What would you, if you got a chance to meet with somebody, how might you help them work through something like that? Yeah. And, and I think what we're looking at here is the, the depth of challenge, right? Mental health challenges are not just, oh, I'm depressed, right? It manifests in relationships and self-esteem and occupation and education and transportation and housing and food. And if you're neurodivergent, the world is not built for you. The world is not built for people who are autistic or dyslexic or ADHD. You know, schools are not built for gifted kids. You know, we, we built society to meet the most people and most people are neurotypical, right? Most people have regular-ish brains and that can navigate within those basic parameters, right? But those of us who are in the neurodivergent community, what we see is that because our brains are different, that all flows downhill. So whereas like, oh gosh, Johnny, you lost your job and you're worried your car's going to repossess. Well, go just get another job. And Johnny's like, I've got significant sensory needs. I can't be on my feet for very long. I don't really get along with people terribly well. The job at the call center was perfect because I didn't have to talk to anybody in person. And I had a nice comfortable chair, but I got laid off. And now I'm not somebody who can go work at Burger King. That's not a thing I can do, right? So your divergences that will make you an absolute rock star at the right job or the right school or with the right partner, unfortunately, those things are harder to find when you're neurodivergent, especially if you're operating from a deficit in knowledge, right? Like if you just think you're a little quirky and you don't know you have an IQ of 145, and you're profoundly gifted, and you're like, why does the world not make sense? Well, knowledge is power, right? We've got to inform you about your brain, the pieces of that brain, and how they manifest in the real world, so then we can work smarter to meet some of those environmental systemic needs. You know, my favorite kind of therapy is a big hug, a grilled cheese sandwich, and $50,000. Unfortunately, I can never do that kind of therapy because I don't have $50,000 let alone $50,000 times all the people I see, right? But that would be the best therapy, right? $50,000 in a grilled cheese sandwich for everybody. That'd be great. So what we need to do is think outside the box because there are things in life that are therapeutic that are not therapy. You know, to bridge our professions again, right? Apple a day keeps the doctor away. And Apple doesn't make you magically healthy. It's not like the one Apple I ate in college. And I was like, ah, oh, that, un that undoes all the fried food. Just that singular Apple I ate that time. But it is emblematic of a commitment to healthier choices, right? And so that's something that's therapeutic without being therapy. So things like exercising, moving your body are therapeutic. It's not therapy, but, you know, listening to music, having a home-cooked meal, 
comfort with another human that you can trust, animals, those are all things that are therapeutic. And that's why, you know, in the UK, they're piloting this program where medical and psychological professionals can prescribe music. They can prescribe pets because it's like, hey, you might not be somebody who can handle financially, psychologically, logistically, whatever, to do eight months of intense psychotherapy. But you're damn right that you can go to the coffee shop that has the stray kittens in it and sit there and have a mocha and pet some cats. And that's going to release a lot of dopamine in your brain. You're taking care of yourself. You're being intentional about it. And that starts to rewire some of the bad stuff that happens from trauma. So often my work isn't, here's how we're going to unpack this bad thing that happened to you. So often it's the thing is like, what can you do right now to take care of yourself? You know, and it's like, ah, you know, sometimes it's like people like, oh, you know, I was going to make myself a cup of tea before therapy. I ran out of time. And I'm like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go make that cup of tea right now. I can wait two minutes. Right. So then I just sit there. I do, I do my fer- therapist fingers. Mm, yeah, it's interesting. Very good. Mm, right. <laughs> um, and then they have their tea. And I'm like, did that feel good? They're like, it did. Because that's the thing. Doing a good thing for yourself with intention, you get extra credit for it in your brain. An extra dose of dopamine. That's a wonderful thing. Awesome. It sounds a little bit like nutrition advice, mentioning the apple. Often I'd say it's better to think about adding something than subtracting. And sometimes the locus of control being there are things that I have found that help turn down the intensity. And I'm thinking this, somebody who's going through that may be, okay, one of the things that if you have a autistic style brain is, well, I do have to do basic routines and I do better with that. Mm-hmm. Go to bed at a consistent time, have a wind down consistently, have that consistent daytime, have a healthy routine. Maybe there involves music or drawing, even if you can't afford the paints, maybe there's crayons, maybe there's simple uh, methods that you can do. Maybe it's simple dancing a little bit if you are into music that can be in your own living room and maybe doing that together with somebody and having within whatever your means are. It's also that over time, this is not going to get better, which is a very frustrating problem um, because in medicine, we're often many people are expecting that quick fix miracle, pure medical model of helping somebody quickly get better One of the questions I wanted to ask, too, is when we look at people who have neurodivergent style brains, nervous systems, et cetera, are they more susceptible in one sense to sustained effects of traumas? So the research on this is very interesting because I also did my homework. So intelligence is a significantly protective factor vis-a-vis resilience factors for trauma. So the more intelligent you are, that is somehow a protective factor, right? And we could talk about some of the systemic stuff there, but it's a little bit too wishy-washy. But giftedness is more than just intelligence. It is a complete different neurotype, right? So if we think about the parietal lobe on top of our head, right, our sensory center, the feedback that comes from that center goes through our entire body through the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. So 
if you are someone whose brain is more susceptible to taking in sensory input, right, that parietal lobe is hypercharged. It's going to do more stuff. So, you know, those neural connections from the parietal lobe to the rest of your brain, they're not local roads, guys. They're super highways. So those impulses are, they're flying down into that sympathetic nervous system. You're having a big response to it. The bigger the response, the more likely it is to read as traumatic. And I do this exercise when I give talks. We'll do a version of it now. It's like, so I have here in my hand, right, this invisible porcelain bowl. Right, there is the invisible porcelain bowl. I'm holding it. And now look, I have this metal fork in my other hand. Now, if you're not watching the video of this, I'm not holding a bowl, nor am I holding a fork. But I am painting a mental picture. And now I'm going to take my fork and put it inside the porcelain bowl and go, screech, 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 screech. And I guarantee you, of your, you know, many, many listeners, a lot of them are cringing right now. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. Not because anything is actually happening, but because our brains are perceiving that. Their brains are going, right, when that thing happens, it hurts. I don't like that thing. I don't want it to happen. So your body is having a whole response to that. And so, you know, the seminal work on trauma is the body keeps the score, right? Because trauma is not just a brain thing. It's not just a heart thing. It's a whole body thing, which is why you have those images of veterans hearing a car backfire and doing a barrel roll behind a bench and cradling an imaginary machine gun. Because the event isn't just happening up here. Your brain is sending signals to your body like, I'm in a life or death situation. Use the training. Go back to when you were 19 and shipped out to Iwo Jima. Right? Like, that's what you're going to do. And for all intents and purposes, for your brain's sake, you're back there on that island. You might be in small town Minnesota. But psychologically speaking, you're back there on that island. So... When we treat trauma, we have to heal the body, not just the mind, right? And that's what makes this work so challenging because we're fighting an entire nervous system, not just a rogue circuit of brain that makes you say, I don't like myself very much, which is its own very thorny problem, of course. So it sounds like people who have neurodivergent brains tend to have a more susceptibility to stress mm-hmm. and just how their brain is wired. When I think of in childhood, and I often take part of part of the history as I find, and I don't know if the, what your experience has been with this, that they're more likely to have been victims of being bullied as in childhood. I know you do a lot of work with kids. Is that something that has any validity to that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like we said before, the world is not built for neurodivergent types, right? So, you know, as much as America is an individualistic society, right, where we celebrate individual greatness, it doesn't work that way in school, right? Standing out in something can be dangerous. It can be life-threatening. You know, if you're the one kid and you have rainbow hair and you wear the pin, you are identifying yourself in a way that is awesome and brave and wonderful, but also can elicit significant bullying because the system is like, you are not like us, right? And my kids that I work with who are brilliant kids, sometimes smarter than their teachers, right? will hear stuff like from adults, like, well, if you're so smart, how come you can't, right? 
or I thought you were some sort of genius if the kid gets something wrong. Like, because there is an ill fit the environment. And this is why people develop the masking, right? The idea of like, I'm going to pass, right, to, to go. And I'm a neurodivergent adult, right? I was just at, an event at my kid's school this evening and I did fine. Nobody would have guessed that I have a 144 IQ and I have ADHD because I've gotten very good at pretending to be like them, right? But there's a cost to that. And it's nice to actually come on this podcast and be my sort of authentic, all over the place, neurospicy self, because this is not masking. This is just like, hey, this is Dr. Matt, right? So we need to have spaces where you can drop the neurotypical act and be neurodivergent, right? And sometimes that's like, the kid's got to go to public school because we can't put them somewhere else, but they can go to the chess club at the library that meets at 3.30, And they go there and it's like, ah, you know, it's like at the end of the day when you take your bra off or your tie off, it's like, ah, I'm yes, good. And like, it's, it's not unlike that, right? So many kids I know who do the arts, right? They're dancers, they're singers, they're theater kids. They're like, I look forward to that all day. The worst day at theater rehearsal is better than the best day in gym class, right? Because that's a place where they can be atypical, right? And everybody needs a space to be themselves. Everybody needs a space to let their hair down. But the more hair you have to let down, to further the metaphor, right, the more important those spaces become. So this is why you see a lot of neurodivergent people find online communities, do a lot of video games, do a lot of audiobooks and podcasts, because it, those are spaces they can create. They become bespoke, right? I mean, so many of my kids are on Discord because it's like, this is a Discord server for people who really like One Piece but don't like the live action remake. That's the Discord we're in, right? This is the Discord for people who are accepted to Yale but don't know how they got into Yale. That's a Discord that exists, right? So you can hyper-specialize, which is amazing because, you know, when we were kids, the, the internet was in its gestational period, right? We didn't have those sort of things. So, like, the idea of putting out a virtual flag and saying to all the other weirdos like here i am and they can go cool there you are right it's you know i mean to make a very nerdy reference you know it's like lord of the rings like the beacons are lit gondor calls for aid and if you got that reference you might be neurodivergent right (laughs) you know what i mean if if you know what page in the original tolkien that was on you are definitely a gifted kid right? Welcome to the club. We meet on Tuesdays. It's going to be great. And that's the thing. It's like, that's the power of community because, you know, making that reference connects me to people. And whether you listen to this podcast tomorrow or two years from now, you and I are having a moment that transcends time and space because it's like this nerdy psychologist said this thing. And I went, Oh, I love that thing. And now we're boom, we're bonded. And now we want more of that. We want more of those people, want more of those experiences, because psychologically, it is about as healthy as you can get. That's where we will end this week's episode. We will hear the second half of the interview with Dr. Matt next week. If you have any questions or comments, feedback, please reach out to me at drmichaellens at gmail.com. Until next week, go Team Fibro. Fibro.